let me begin with a word of prayer. Lord, um, as we turn our hearts to you, we ask that you would speak to us and that we would hear your word and that we would do more than just hear you, we would behold you. So, O Holy Spirit, would you enliven our souls to receive the things of God so that we might respond in repentance and faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Dr. Henry Nowen was a professor at some of the most prestigious universities here in America. He used to teach at the University of Notre Dame, Yale, and Harvard. He published over 39 books and hundreds of articles. He possessed a very brilliant mind. And yet what stands out from Nowen's career, more than his books, more than his teaching posts, is that near the end of his life, he took the drastic step of leaving academia and he became a pastor at La Arche Daybreak in Canada a very small institution dedicated to serving adults with intellectual disabilities. For the last 10 years of his life, he would spend his days serving patients with Down syndrome, autism, patients who suffered from fetal alcohol syndrome. He would spend his remaining days hanging out, spending time with patients who can't talk, who could only grunt, with patients who cannot appreciate his intellectual prowess. He would take them to the restroom. He would help feed them. He would spend time with them. His was a ministry of presence. And yet, he writes, that was where he experienced Jesus the most. That was where he saw Jesus the most. Henry Nowen is one who lived a beautiful life. Now, what would compel someone like Nowen to give up his prestigious teaching posts and national book tours to live with and serve the marginalized of our society? Only one possible explanation the gospel. I have many friends who graduated from top universities with advanced degrees in engineering, medicine, and business. And yet, though they could have easily pursued a comfortable, successful life here in America, they decided to become a missionary in poor countries across the globe in countries like Cambodia, Yemen, and China. What could possibly explain their decisions? Only one answer, the gospel. Their decisions serve as living reminders that the gospel is a dynamic reality. It doesn't just work in us, it works through us. It works through us and has a centrifugal movement that propels us outwards in loving service towards others. It transforms us into people who
who give generously, serve sacrificially, and love lavishly. As much as the gospel has an inward impact on our hearts, it also has an outward impact on those around us. And it's this other person, outward-focused impact that I want to dig in further with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 14. You can turn or tap, swipe there. Galatians 5, 13 through 14. Here's a reading of God's word. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul begins by telling us that we were called to freedom. And so naturally, we want to ask freedom from what? Freedom from massive student loan debt? Freedom from an unbearable mother-in-law? Freedom from pants that are just way too small for you? No. Freedom, if you've read the first four chapters of Galatians, he obviously means freedom from legalism. Legalism. What is legalism? Whereas you can probably detect at the root of the word is the word legal, which means law. And so legalism is the false belief that we can make ourselves right with God by obeying the law. It's the false belief that if we try hard enough, obey long enough, we can get God to accept us. We can get God to bless us and reward us. In a nutshell, legalism says, if I obey, God will love me. God's love is conditioned upon my obedience to the law. Now, legalism is basically the ethos of every world religion. You look at every major religion, and they basically tell you the same principle. If you obey these rules, if you follow these customs, if you read this text or say these prayers, then God will accept you. God will love you. It's up to you, though. But you don't have to be religious to be a legalist. I know plenty of non-religious people who are just as legalistic. They may not follow the rules of a sacred text, but they sure do follow their own rules. I need to be environmentally conscious. I need to be kind. I need to be inclusive and tolerant of every belief. If I do these things then I am a good person, then I will live a good life. Whether you are religious or irreligious, however, it's up to you to save yourself. It's up to you to obey either your handcrafted laws or the laws of another. But there's a problem with legalism. 
The Bible tells us that no amount of trying, no amount of obeying will ever secure or earn God's love. Simply put, we are way too sinful and God is way too holy for that to happen. If God were to give each and every single one of us what we deserve, all of us in this room, including me, would be condemned because we fail to measure up to God's perfect standard. Thankfully, there's another way, another path than the path of legalism. Paul lays this out in Galatians 2, verse 16. I want you to listen carefully. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. That's legalism. Instead, through faith, in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so Paul makes it really crystal clear. No one can be made right with God by works of the law. Instead, we are made right through faith in Jesus Christ. In every religion... God makes demands on us. But Christianity is unique in that God not only makes demands on us, He meets those demands for us. He not only makes demands on us and tells us how to live, but He meets and satisfies those demands for us through Jesus Christ. And that is why Jesus came into this world. He came to live a perfect life. He came to do what you and I fail to do, obeying God's laws perfectly, so that anyone who believes and trusts in Jesus will receive his obedience. It will be credited to him so that when God looks at you and me, he no longer sees our failures. He no longer sees our sinfulness and our rebellion. Instead, he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's the way to being made right with God, not by looking at your own works and what you can do for him, but by looking at Jesus' works and what he has done for you. And this is what Paul means by freedom. There is great freedom in the gospel. We have been set free from the fear of condemnation. No longer do we need to look over our shoulders, insecure about how God feels about us. No longer do we have to live as if every move we make is under his scrutiny, and depending on what we do, he will either love us or punish us. Rather, we live in the sure confidence that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That even after we've sinned, even after we've broken a promise, even after we've hurt someone we loved, when we turn to Jesus, 
We will not find someone ready to pounce on us or scold us or shame us. Rather, we will find someone running after us with open arms, excited to forgive us, wanting to reconcile us. That is the freedom we have as Christians to be secure in God's love, to know that God is pleased because of what Christ has done for us, to know that we are a somebody to him, worthy of love, worthy of delight. And that has a life-transforming impact on our souls. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on. In verse 13, he says, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. He says, You have been called to freedom, but don't use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. What does he mean by opportunity of the flesh? Here, Paul is now calling out another lie. In addition to exposing the lie of legalism, now he's exposing the lie of lawlessness. You see, lawlessness is the perverse belief that because Jesus saved us, the law of God no longer matters. It's the perverse belief that since God loves me, I don't have to obey. He doesn't care about how I live. Now that I am loved by God, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want, with whoever I want. It doesn't matter anymore. And this is what he means by opportunity for the flesh. By flesh, he's referring to our sinful and corrupt nature. And Paul knows that we are so corrupted by sin that we're going to take something as beautiful as the gospel and distort it into our own image. That we'll take what the gospel says and we'll use it as a license to sin rather than a license from sin. Prepositions are really important. There's a big difference between seeing the gospel as freeing us from sin and freeing us to sin. It's the former, not the latter. What helps us avoid the error of legalism to the left and lawlessness to the right is to understand that the law of God has multiple uses. Traditionally, God's law has three distinct uses. I'm only going to highlight two for you. The first use is what theologians call the pedagogical use of the law. This use of the law is that God gave us the law to reveal our sins to us. It acts as a mirror to show us where we fall short, to show all the ways we fail to keep his commands perfectly. Now, can this law actually change us? No. A mirror might point out the booger in your eye, 
But that mirror cannot remove that booger, right? In the same way, the law of God reveals our sinfulness, but the law cannot remove our sinfulness. And so what does the law do? It points us to someone who can forgive us, who can clean us, and that's Jesus. And that's what it means by pedagogical use. It teaches us to turn and look to Jesus. But there's a second use of the law as well. The law of God not only reveals our sinfulness, but it also shows us how we can show our love for God. We obey the law of God not as a way to earn his love, but rather to express our thanksgiving for his love. Lord, you have done this for me. You have rescued me from legalism. You've rescued me from lawlessness. How can I repay you? How can I thank you? And God says, I'm glad that you asked. Here are the ways you can thank me by keeping these commands. Charles Spurgeon has a wonderful quote regarding this use. He writes, what is God's law now? It's not above a Christian. It is under a Christian. Some men hold God's law like a rod in terror over Christians. Any of us here grew up in a church where the law of God was used as a rod to scare us? And say, if you sin, you will be punished with it. It is not so. The law is under a Christian. It is for him to walk on, to be his guide, his rule, his pattern. We are not under the law, but under grace. Law is the road which guides us, not the rod which drives us, nor the spirit which actuates us. The law is good and excellent if it keeps its place. Indeed, the law of God is not hanging over us in a reign of terror. It is under us, under us serving as a path and guide for us. Now that we know what the gospel has saved us from, legalism and lawlessness, what has the gospel saved us to? Paul keeps it real simple. Through love, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. And to underscore the importance of what he just said, he then goes on in verse 14 and says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, Paul says, if you serve one another in love, then pretty much you're fulfilling the entire law of God. If you dedicate your life to loving service, if you humbly serve those around you, you're pretty much fulfilling the entire law of God. Serving one another is the very essence of Christian obedience. Serving one another is the very essence of Christian obedience. I want us to dwell on this a bit. First, I hope you realize just how radical this is. We live in a world today where serving is demeaning, where serving is beneath us. 
It's assumed that the richer, more significant, more powerful you become, the more servants, the more people you have doing your bidding. The higher you climb, the wealthier you are, the less you do things for yourself and instead have other people do those things for you. Someone wealthy might hire a butler, hire a maid. They have assistants who pick up their dry cleaning. You have chefs who do all your cooking. Instead of having to drive over to get your next haircut, you can hire someone to come to your home and style your hair. I once went to the restroom of a very swanky hotel and was shocked to find a butler standing at the door. He had a silver tray with warm steamed tiles piled on it. And after I washed my hands, he took these silver tongs and he placed a towel in my hands. I must confess, that was quite nice. (laughs) It's human nature to want to be served rather than to serve. And yet here Paul takes this and turns it on its head and says, if you are a Christian, then loving service is the direction and posture of your life. Dear friends, have you ever done something nice for someone to only discover that that person didn't say thanks for what you did? Everything in you wants to get upset and mad and you say to yourself, am I your servant? And God here says, Actually, yeah. Actually, yeah. And by service, I don't mean the type of service that is self-righteous. Talking about how our flesh can take something and turn it into its own image, we can actually make serving others selfish. How so? By doing it on our own terms by picking and choosing who we serve and will serve those that we think might benefit us, by picking and choosing how we serve, only doing those things that we like, by doing things for the sake of approval, status. I shared this story before, but it's worth sharing again. Many years ago, while my wife was out with her friends, I decided to be a good husband and do the laundry. And so I must have done three loads of laundry, from washer to dryer to folding it nicely. And after I was done, I put them neatly in two baskets. And what did I do next? I placed those two baskets at the foot of the stairs, which also happens to be at the very entrance of the garage. Why? So that when my wife comes home, from her night out, the first thing she sees are the nice loads of neatly folded laundry. Was I serving her? No, I was serving myself. Now, why is the essence of Christian obedience loving service? Why does God call us to something that is so counter? cultural. 
It's because of Jesus. Jesus was a servant. Jesus continues to serve. He is the one who literally got on his hands and knees to wash the disciples' feet. He is a servant who puts our interests above his own to the point of laying down his life. When we picture earthly kings, we often imagine someone sitting on a throne with hundreds of servants doing their, building, uh, doing their bidding but when we picture Jesus, we see him with a towel wrapped around his waist, stooping down, scrubbing the disciples' feet. If this Jesus is our King and Lord, if the Spirit of Jesus is dwelling in our hearts then surely the more we grow in our faith, the more we become like him the humbler we'll be, the more service we give. The gospel is the reason why our service is no longer selfish. When you recognize and grasp what Jesus has done for you, and I don't mean just know with your minds, but really allow the gospel to ring and sing in your heart, Serving takes on a whole new dimension. It no longer becomes a status-seeking exercise. It no longer becomes a task-oriented exercise. It actually becomes relationally oriented. Let me explain. Parents, how many of you have done things for your children that you wouldn't dare do for a stranger? How many of us have gotten our hands, our fingers, our fingernails dirty cleaning up and uh, 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 taking care of our baby's diapers? How many of us have gotten on all fours scrubbing the carpet that had throw up all over it? How many of us don't hesitate to wipe our kids' noses with our thumb without even thinking? Now, if we did that, to a stranger, that'd be really weird, right? We would never do that. And yet, though these tasks are gross and demeaning and humiliating even, we do them. Why? Because we love our kids. We do it for our kids. In the same way, Christian service, gospel-fueled service, no longer considers who we're serving or what we're doing, it only has in mind an audience of one, and that is Jesus. And when it is Jesus who we are serving, then no task is beneath us. No duty is too demeaning. Lord, you want me to care and love this homeless person who hasn't taken a shower in weeks. I'll do it for you. Lord, you want me to be kind and hospitable to this person that I cannot stand. I'll do it for you. Lord, you want me to visit this prisoner and share the gospel even though he's committed murder. I'll do it for you. Colossians 3, 23 
says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And so you can see this gospel dynamic that propels us outwards towards service. It propels us outwards towards others. The gospel is always on the move, and the people of God is, are always on the move. The gospel is never static and always dynamic. It compels us. It energizes us. It pushes us towards loving service towards others. As Paul says elsewhere, the love of Christ compels us. I can't sit still. That is what a healthy Christian life looks like. If you've been with us the past couple of months, you know that throughout this sermon series, Pastor Lewis and I have been helping you see the four major callings God has placed on every believer. If you follow Jesus Christ and confess him as Lord, I want you to know that there are four callings the Bible describes each of us to possess and exercise. These four callings are to behold, to belong, to become, and to bless. We are called to behold God regularly, weekly, in public worship. We are called to belong and do life not on our own, but to share our faith by living in the context of community. We are called to become as we strive to become more like Jesus in daily repentance and faith. And lastly, we are called to bless. We are called to turn to others in loving service. Each of these four callings ought to describe a healthy Christian life. Each of these are indispensable to a healthy faith. You can't pick and choose and say, God, I want to do two, but not the other two. They are four ventricles of the Christian heart. You can't grow with only three working ventricles, last I checked. All four need to be prime and pumping. Unfortunately, the pandemic has done a number on the church's ability to be whole, to be long, be calm and bless. One in particular is the area of bless. According to a recent Gallup poll, volunteerism in religious organizations have dropped to a 20-year low. It's a 10% drop. Another survey revealed that 35% of members are no longer serving as much as they did before the pandemic. What are the factors behind this? One of them is obvious. It's the fear of COVID. Uh, there are a lot of elderly people and those with pre-existing conditions who should not be involved as much for their own safety. And as you could guess, a large pool of volunteerism come from empty nesters and the elderly. But another factor, I think, is just habituation. We stepped away from a season 
But now it's hard to get back in because we've grown accustomed to it. But dear friends, I want us to be healthy. And as your pastor, I'm committed to your spiritual health. And I want to see all of us thriving. A TV show that I recently watched was the show Alone. I think it's created by the History Channel. It can now be found on Netflix. It's a reality survival show where they pretty much scatter 10 contestants across the wilderness to survive alone. The winner is the person who can last the longest without tapping out. And so if you're a survivalist, what is one of the first things you do? You look for water. And a basic survival tip is that when looking for water, you want to avoid as much as possible water that is still, water that isn't moving. It's susceptible to bacteria. It's susceptible to disease that will make you sick. The danger of not moving, the danger of stagnation can also be seen in our physical health. Someone who doesn't exercise, someone who is sedentary, someone who isn't active, over time is going to develop problems. Their blood pressure will be high. Their metabolism will be low. They're more susceptible to depression and anxiety. The same exact principle applies to us spiritually. If you are not exercising spiritually, if you are not actively serving others, if you're not actively participating in kingdom work, your spiritual health will be impacted over time. I guarantee it. Your spiritual metabolism will slow down. You'll find yourself hungering less and less for God's word and prayer. I've seen this in my own life physically. As you know, I injured my knee about two months ago, and because of that, I'm not able to play soccer as as I used to. And so I've found that my metabolism is slower, and I'm eating a lot less. When I play soccer and run miles at a time, I'm hungry, and I eat a lot more. The same is true spiritually. I have found that those who are most excited to read God's word and pray are those who are most involved in kingdom work. Remember the last time you shared the gospel with a non-believing friend? Perhaps on campus, on a mission trip? Do you remember how fervently you prayed because of that endeavor? But when you disengage from service, when you are inactive over time, your spiritual metabolism slows down, and now there's no urgency to read. There's no urgency to pray. Over time, your capacity for joy and excitement in your walk with the Lord will also die down. No longer do you have front row seats witnessing what God can do through you. It's been ages now since you've seen the Holy Spirit work through you. And so the Christian life now seems so boring. 
as your pastor, I want to see us beholding, belonging, becoming, and blessing. Only then can spiritual oxygen flow throughout our souls. I am someone who doesn't like to upset people. I've learned that about myself. I don't like ruffling feathers. And so even in giving this gentle encouragement, hey, I want you to consider serving, makes me feel uncomfortable. But I need to do it. Paul says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Rather, in love, serve one another. Inside your worship programs, you'll find an insert that lists all the various opportunities that our church has for you to serve. One unfortunate reality is that during the pandemic, our church grew. That's not the unfortunate part. (laughs) The unfortunate part is, though we grew, our volunteerism shrank. And so our faithful servants now have more to do. And we've opened up a new ministry towards college students, and so there are even more opportunities Can I ask you to prayerfully look over that list and consider how you might join one of our teams? I ask you to do this because it's good for our spiritual health. But I also ask because it's good for our church. Our children need role models. They need to hear the gospel from other than their parents. Our middle school and high school students need role models. They need people who can show that they care for them and that they can trust them and listen to them. Our Sunday ops team need volunteers. I can go on and on. Our outreach need volunteers. And so please prayerfully consider how God might use you so that we in loving response to Jesus, our high king, who served us at the cost of his own life, we can step out in faith and show our thanksgiving for what he's done as children of God who strive to live beautiful lives. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for serving us though you could have simply made demands on us, in love you met those very demands for us and gave us freedom. Freedom to experience your love and freedom to serve. Pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would work in our hearts so that this church would be healthy and so that this church would be full of healthy people those who are actively engaged in beholding, belonging, becoming, and blessing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.